everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart, keeping you healthy and pain-free. And today, as promised in the newsletter that went out on Monday, today I am going to be talking to Dr. Joe Brents, and he is one of the featured speakers at the San Diego Pain Summit. So the San Diego Pain Summit takes place in San Diego from February 20th to the 22nd. To find out more about it and to see all of the speakers, go to sandiegopainsummit.com. And just a couple of important dates. Registration closes on February on uh, February 19th. So if you want to get in on this pain summit, you have to do it by the 19th of February. If you can't make it to San Diego, no worries. There is live video access. And if you sign up before the end of this month, before the end of January, so by 131, it's $199. After that, it goes up to 249. And again, <clears throat> both the access to live video and the actual in-person conference registration for both closes on February 19th. So uh, again, you can go to sandiegopainsummit.com, find out more about all the speakers. And so, so today we're going to kind of get right uh, to today's podcast. And I'm really happy to have on the show for, I don't even know how many times, probably the second or third time, Dr. Joe Brents. So uh, Dr. Brents, why don't you just give all the listeners a quick background of, on, uh, on you and, and uh, your story? Okay. Hey, thanks again for having me, Karen. I believe this is my third time yeah. uh, on your broadcast. So, so again, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I, I guess my background, I'll start after I graduated from Duquesne University with my DPT. Uh, I started kind of searching for myself and, and uh, you know, questioning some things I was doing. So I, I searched and, and thought out a COMP through the Maitland Australian Therapy Seminars, uh, Still wasn't satisfied or still wasn't getting the results I was looking for, so I, I partaked in a, a, a ABPTRFE accredited fellowship program in, in manual physical therapy. Um, I, I spent two years uh, going through that. Uh, while going through that, I was able to, to study the concept of pain science a little bit deeper, partake in, in some clinical research studies. Um, clinically, I uh, provide physical therapy services in multiple settings. Um, I'm also an educator and adjunct faculty at Duquesne University, uh, lab assistant at Chatham University, uh, and I do some uh, postgraduate teaching out of West Virginia University. I am a co-owner of NextGen Physical Therapy, and what NextGen does is we provide postgraduate educational uh, courses such as residency and fellowship. Uh, to physical therapists who are seeking those. I also work for the American Physical Therapy Association on an editorial board for consumer-related content, uh, and I am an editor of a British sports medicine journal called Sport EAC. Great. Well, thank you. It sounds like you're incredibly busy. So I think if, you know, if people have the chance to get out to San Diego or to uh, log on to live video access, this is going to be a real treat. So Dr. Brents, is, what he's going to be talking about, and I'll have him go into more of this, but his uh, lecture is on the MIP algorithm, which is a clinical construct for the application of motor control. So, so Joe, what does MIP stand for? And give us kind of a, a, a preview of what to expect in San Diego. Sure. So... <coughs> 
the MIP algorithm was derived several years ago uh, between myself and, and my colleague, Dr. Francois Krasinski. Uh, we were driving in the, in the car one day and, and uh, just discussing what do we do with our patients? How do we get our patients better? Can we explain that? Um, obviously, there's this uh, um, increased knowledge that we're gaining in terms of uh, our presence and our therapeutic alliance that we develop with patients and how important that is in getting our patients better. But how can we define this to a clinician who may have been educated that treating the tissue is going to get that patient better? So we thought, <coughs> let's look at the three variables that we think are most important in the patient interaction. So the MIP stands for motivation. Is the patient motivated to get better? Do they believe they're in the right place, and do they believe that I am the person to help them get better or help them move better? The I stands for input. So what type of input does this patient need to get better? Is this patient going to be a responder to manual techniques? Do they need exercise? What forms of input need to be provided to influence them moving differently? And the P stands for plan. Does the individual have the ability to cortically develop a motor plan to move differently? So I may ask the patient, walk down the hallway, but if they have the inability to formulate a motor plan to execute what I ask them to do extraoceptively, they may not be able to do that. So do they have that, that plan in place? And, and we really think that those are the three ingredients, not necessarily just for motor control, but for anything that we do as clinicians. And, and really excited to, to provide uh, some data and research supporting how important those three things are to our patient interactions. And how, so how does this work clinically? So if you're, let's say, you know, you're with a patient, how do you sure. sort of specifically apply these in your interaction, in your language, and in your treatment of the patient? So, subjectively, one of the first things that I ask my patients, do you think you're in the right place? Do you think I'm the person that can help you? And I think this is an extremely important question, especially when we look at workers' compensation and the numbers related to workers' compensation as compared to other third-party payers. So, say that I wanted to, to receive physical therapy services. I'm going to seek out a physical therapist. Uh-huh. Well, individuals in the workers' compensation game may be, may be told you have to see a physical therapist. So the patient might not actually be motivated that, that this individual is what I need to get better. So understanding the patient's beliefs and how motivated they are for recovery is inherently important. So I, definitely one of the first things that I ask my patients because it's likely prognostic on them getting better. Mm-hmm. Right, because the, the there's... Was, oh, yeah, go ahead. So the word placebo is thrown around, you know, quite a bit. And, mm-hmm. and Dr. Joel Bialowski, a couple years ago, had this article out. I believe it was called Manual Therapy, Something Out of Nothing. And, and what he discussed in this article was how important it is to kind of capture that little bit of placebo in our patient interaction. So if my patient is motivated and really believes that they should be in my clinic that might in and of itself create a little bit of a placebo response that's going to assist in their recovery. It might not be simply because of the interventions I employ. It might be because of those beliefs that were initially set 
upon that first visit. So that's generally where I start clinically with this algorithm. Yeah, and that ahead, yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And what a great question to ask. And it kind of makes me think of you know some of the initial research into um, uh, clinical prediction rules. One of the some of the research has shown that one of the uh, aspects of whether of that clinical prediction rule is if the patient feels like the treatment's going to help. Exactly. And so if, if the patient, and listen, and we've all had patients who, I've had patients who've come in and said, I don't know why I'm here. My trainer told me I had to come. And you're like, okay, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's good to know right off the bat. And then, you know, through treatment anyway, this patient ended up being very, very happy with her care. But I think it's important for us as the clinician to understand the mindset of the patient when they're coming in, because it may alter your treatment plan. Am I right? You're exactly right. And it's not isolated to just us as physical therapists. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about this conference that's going on in San Diego, this implies to the physician, that implies to the massage therapist. I just had an interaction on Twitter with uh, Dr. Besser. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Besser is an ABC uh, uh, medical correspondent. He's a medical physician. And, and he was citing some literature in which if the patient believes they need antibiotics for a virus, that can actually, there's research support that that actually will get them better. Physiologically, the antibiotics aren't going to touch the virus. Right. But it's going to make the patient feel like they're getting better. So there's, there's kind of this, this struggle between, you know, do we treat uh, the patient's beliefs or do we just treat the physiology? And, and I think there has to be this combination in which we have to take the patient's beliefs and motivators into account when we intervene. Yeah, I agree. And there is a middle ground there because you don't want to do just what the patient believes because it could be fraudulent. You're you're exactly right. And so then you get into an ethical dilemma, ethical question with with you as a physical therapist saying, well, I know that this is not the best thing for the patient, but this is what they want, so I'm going to do it. I don't know. I don't don't really like that argument. Yeah, there's kind of this... uh um, and that is, that's the million-dollar argument. Do uh-huh. we intervene simply based upon the patient's beliefs, or, or do we take the patient's beliefs into account and try to restructure them uh, as, as we move along? And, and Dr. Adrian Lau had a recent article out in which he re-educated patients with a, a one session on, on neuroscience education uh-huh. before getting back surgery. Uh-huh. Now that those patients were able to get better, those patients likely didn't have an, a good understanding of the neuromatrix, they probably had more of a biomedical uh, understanding of what was happening mm-hmm. uh, within the tissues of our body, but simply restructuring their thoughts and restructuring their beliefs uh, can improve outcomes. Yeah. So we believe that the patient needs to believe first that they're in the right place, they're motivated to get better, and then we start to, to gently restructure some of their thoughts and, and some of their beliefs so that they can get better. Yeah, and it's important to know what the patient's sort of motivation is or beliefs are because that's your window in. That's where you can meet them versus exactly ramming, right. ramming facts and figures and studies down their throat. They're going to leave and be like, what? <laughs> like, what's I, up I with that guy? Past, you're exactly right. So when I got out of school, I was extremely fascinated by research and extremely fascinated about and the amount of, of literature that's coming out to support our profession, but it's more than just research. It's, it's how do we imply what we're understanding and, and understanding that some of the research that does come out 
might not be that plausible to our patient population. So uh, mm -hmm. there has to be this good uh, mix of in taking into account what's happening on the research end, but understanding that that end of one or that patient in front of you as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you've, you've, you, uh, you figure out why the person's there. They've told you, you have a sense of their motivation. What do you do next? Sure. So a couple years ago, I was able to participate in a research study with uh, Dr. Chad Cook. And what we looked at within the study was what's called a within-and-between session change to manual therapy. Mm -hmm. So during the assessment portion, or during the examination portion, or objective examination portion of our interaction, we looked at, does mobility testing feel good to the patient? So if we have them laying on their stomach and we press on their spine, they say, yeah, that feels kind of good. We actually found that that was prognostic over outcomes uh, when manual therapy is applied. So that might be the type of input that's necessary for this patient. So after my subjective examination is done, that patient's motivated, I lay them on their stomach, do that segmental mobility testing. If they say, yeah, that feels good, well, the type of input they need is likely manual therapy-based. If they say, nah, that doesn't feel too good, I don't like you pushing there, then maybe we need to attempt another approach first before we would attempt manual therapy with that patient. Mm -hmm. So dosing the right type of input for a patient is extremely important in terms of, of what we do. Um, I, I'm not, you brought up clinical prediction rules. I'm not completely sold on, on the value of clinical prediction mm -hmm. rules. It really doesn't take this into account. Um, I, I think that the clinical prediction rule says there's the presence of at least one hypomobile segment, but it doesn't say that that patient liked us pushing on that hypomobile segment. Yeah. And I think that that's what's more important in prognostic. Right, right, because there's a lot, as, as we know, when it comes to, and, you know, we're using sort of the example of a patient with, with back pain, I'm assuming, or, or a patient coming in to see us for a back as we're talking about um, uh, seg spinal segments, but... You know, when, when you have a patient coming in to see you, as we know now with the biopsychosocial method versus the biomedical method, that there's a lot more to a patient's diagnosis and symptoms than just something that you could feel manually or that you can do manually. You're exactly right. Mm -hmm. There is so much more than just a hypomobile segment. Yeah. We have to determine, okay, that hypomobile segment exists. It doesn't mean I should be pushing on it yeah. all day. Yeah. Uh, we have to take that patient's uh, nervous system into account. So when I provide an input, such as a mobilization or manipulation, does that result in a positive, what's called a within-session change? Did they feel better following that, that type of input? Now, I don't want to limit the type of input just to manual therapy. So let's think about when we walk in the clinic. Do we like the music that, that's going on in the background? Do we like the, the visual uh, that we see when we walk in that clinic? Is it a clean clinic? There's a lot of input uh -huh. that can affect uh, an already defensive nervous system. Uh, really, really important to understand. Yeah, and, and I think also the, and I think we've talked about this before, but even as the physical therapist, it, when you have a patient coming in to see you, if you're seeing them in a private treatment room, which hopefully most people are for 
um, an initial examination. Where you sit in the room can make a difference to the patient. Uh, the the way you speak to them, are you are you empathetic? Are you sympathetic? You know, all these things can certainly change the way the person's nervous system is reacting to their time with you. So I think that there's so many different inputs that go into the system that can lead to an output. You know, Lorimer Mosley talks a lot about that input-output cycle and how an, an input that we may see, that we may think is nothing, can ramp up someone's output very, very much. You're exactly right. So um, we can talk about extraoceptive inputs. And what extraoceptive inputs are are those, those inputs that come in via our five senses. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about extraoceptive inputs uh, in the centrally sensitized patient. So the patient who has a very sensitive nervous system like fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. Well, some research by Dr. Uh, Joe Nigis has found that these individuals have a hypersensitivity to bright light. Now let's think about the majority of outpatient physical uh, therapy clinics out there, mm-hmm. they have overhead fluorescent lighting. Mm-hmm. So if we lay one of these patients that are centrally sensitized uh, on, a, on a plinth and, and they're staring straight up at all these bright lights, what's happening to their nervous system? Well, that extraoceptive input could be making it more defensive. Really, really important for us to understand. So simply by dimming the lights, might make their nervous system less defensive, mm-hmm. might help them calm down just mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. They're also hypersensitive to touch and to noise and to a lot of different things. So taking that into account in those type of patients is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And coming from a, someone who has a fair amount of central sensitization, being me, all that okay. stuff is spot on, you know? So you really have to think about that when you're when you're treating your patients. And I could remember getting treated by PTs and them, you know, just wanting to do manual therapy, and it would I would feel so much worse, you know, and and not just worse pain wise, but talk about your your entire nervous system. Like my sympathetic nervous system would be so ramped up that I would feel like I was going to pass out. Exactly. I mean, it can get to that point, you know. And that, that actually happened on a course. How embarrassing, right? Wow. <laughs> Extremely embarrassing. That's, so yeah, not, it was so but, embarrassing. Anyway, I've never taken a course from that company again because I've been like, like mortified. <laughs> anyway, okay. You're aggressive. So let's think about our patients. Well, you know, yeah. If you're the clinician, you're understanding what's coming and understanding you were just taught a new technique. Our patients aren't taught a technique. Sometimes we blindly apply things without thinking about explaining it to them, without yep. preparing their nervous system for what's coming. So you heard after the application of a technique that you understood. Let's think about the patients who have a technique that they don't understand mm-hmm. uh, applied. Uh, really, really important concept. Yeah, absolutely. So, so part of that input, ver- the input part of the MIP algorithm goes much beyond just manual input. So I think that's You're very exactly very right. important for people to understand that input comes in through all the senses. It comes in from how you speak to the patient, preparing them, managing expectations, I think is huge for patients. So that all will kind of be clumped into that input section. Is that right? You're exactly okay. right. So there's, there's almost four classes of input. We can input proprioceptively. So I think physical therapists understand that well, mm-hmm. that concept. 
We get it interoceptively, so that's that nociceptive input, that right. mechanical deformation input. Mm-hmm. We get extraceptive, which is via our senses, and then we have uh, our understanding of, of our prior beliefs and, and some things that happen on with or happen within the brain. So right. those are our four categories of, of inputs that come into the system. Yeah. So so as a clinician, it's important that you really take all of those things into account before uh, before, during, and after you're, you're with a, uh, your patient, whether they're a new patient or an existing patient. Um, sure. yeah. Okay, so let's now move to the last uh, variable in the MIP algorithm, which is the P and plan. So you've, you've, done the, you've got your patient's motivation. You have an idea of what inputs may influence them. I think that evolves over time as you treat the patient. So what's the plan? So we believe that um, after the patient, yes, they're in the right place, they're motivated, they're going to get better. We provide or figure out kind of the inputs that they need. But if we're going to ask them to move differently, if we're going to, because that's kind of what we do. The patient comes in because they hurt, and and because they hurt, they don't move a certain way. Mm -hmm. Can they actually plan for that movement? I think that a lot of times we ask patients to do something, are they able to plan for it before the execution? We believe this is where uh, some stuff that's coming out of, of NOI group and, and body and mind in mm-hmm. terms of uh, graded motor imagery. Mm-hmm. We believe that that fits in here, the laterality concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, can a patient actually imagine themselves doing something that we're asking them to do? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that we really ask our patients to do this. I think that a lot of times our, our patients get handed off to maybe an aide or an assistant and we tell them, okay, follow this flow sheet of exercises. In my personal opinion, um, I, I think that sometimes we give way too much stuff for our patients that are uh, that's completely unnecessary. Um, I think that we need uh, to instead ask the patients, can you imagine yourself doing this? And let's try executing that imagination. Can you uh, take a step, imagine yourself taking a step, imagine it this way. If you can imagine it, let's try to execute it and see mm-hmm. if it you know, matches. See if that plan matches. Yeah, because, you know, there are people with complex pain issues, whether it be complex regional pain syndrome, phantom limb pain, fibromyalgia, or even just long-term chronic pain, who, you know, my sister is a physical therapist in Pennsylvania, and she, believe it or not, and this is almost unheard of, has five patients on her schedule with CRPS and one with phantom limb. Is that not the most unbelievable thing you've ever heard? That's pretty unbelievable. I told and I told Adrian Lowe, and he was like, all in what? one area. I'm wondering uh, yes. what's going on socioeconomically in, in the area that she's treating. I know. Well, uh, she's in central Pennsylvania. But um, okay. I told Adrian Lowe, and he was like, I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah, I've never. That, that's amazing. But the, the point of me saying this is she had a patient who, when he tried to imagine himself moving, all he saw was blackness. He literally could not see himself. He couldn't, and he couldn't even picture someone else moving. So how's this person going to formulate a plan to do exercises you're giving him when, when he tries to visualize himself moving, it's just blackness. Now he had a lot of other, um, uh, other stuff going on. At any rate, he did get better. Well, you know, he's improving, but you know, so, so it's important to ask your patients, can you imagine yourself doing it? Because what if they can't? Then what do you do? Exactly. So then I, that's where I would back up and, and potentially try graded motor imagery 
with that patient? Can mm-hmm. they determine their left from right? So instead of just asking them, can you formulate this complex motor plan in your brain, can you determine, you know, a side of the body? Can you determine mm-hmm. your right from your left? Uh, so I would probably back up and, and see if they can imagine that. Mm-hmm. Now, you brought up phantom limb pain, and, and when I'm out in San Diego, I'm going to be talking about a study in which they looked at amputees. Mm-hmm. And they looked at amputees who developed phantom limb pain, and they found that individuals who had phantom limb pain also had a significant difficulty in imagining themselves moving that phantom limb mm-hmm. compared to the individuals who, had, who were amputees who did not have phantom limb pain. Very interesting that there's that connection between the motor planning and pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, y- even if you look at at people who have, you know, maybe chronic back pain or, or which is, I guess, the usual, or maybe a chronic knee pain or something like that, and you ask them to move, they will have a hard time planning that movement because the, uh, you know, motor components within the brain, let's say that uh, motor cortex in the brain is not really understanding where that part of the body is, is, well, I guess it would be the sensory motor cortex. But if, if, you, if the brain doesn't understand where that body part is, how can it then communicate to make it to move? You're exactly right, Karen. And what's interesting is, is that we understand that this happens, but we're not, mm-hmm. I, I'm not convinced that we understand why it happens. Mm-hmm. So my speculation is that it's an individual defensive response similar to pain. Um, on the, the neuromatrix, if you look at the diagram, the second one down on the right, um, the second type of output mm-hmm. is action programming. So mm-hmm. it's likely a defensive output from the brain. So how do we make sense of this? Should yeah. we be attempting to change this, this defensive output? Um, and how do we do that? Right. Um, I, I think that simply attempting to desensitize the nervous system first would... would, would uh, I think that's would, a good start. With yeah. Yes, that would be the start before we would attempt to execute a movement. So sending patients home the first day with a bunch of exercises may not be the best thing for them because their altered movement may actually be a defensive response. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I have a patient with um, CRPS who he was actually having uh, short-term memory loss. And I was... He said, you know, the doctor told me it was because of the uh, amount of medications he was on. Okay, which I guess it could be. Um, And then another doctor said, no, it's from the CRPS. And so I immediately sent an email to uh, Dr. Lowe, Adrian Lowe, and asked him, is this, can this happen in someone with CRPS? And he said, what happens is, and you probably know the answer to this, but the hippocampus, which is instrumental in our short-term memory, if that is part of that pain neurotag, then what happens is the hippocampus is so focused on the pain that it forgets to do what it's supposed to in layman's terms. So exactly right. Pretty interesting. It's trying to defend the organism in which it lives. So Mm -hmm. so the brain, okay, is attempting to take care of the body. It's such an interesting concept. Yeah. But if we... If, if we look at it that way, the brain's going to do everything in its power to defend. So if it has to defend via pain, you know, versus uh, um, 
you know, utilizing its, its ability for short-term memory, that's probably the, the route it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very interesting concept. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Um, okay, uh, what, else, what else is involved in the planning aspect? So, so pretty much what I described is, is, is kind of where we're at. I think that this is a, a newer area of study. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of, you know, great literature that's coming out, but it's a, it's a fairly... Uh, fairly in its infantile stage. So um, that's what we understand, at least at this point. We know that it's important. We know that we probably should attempt to, to motor plan, and likely in a sequence mm-hmm. described by the individuals who have done research on graded motor imagery. But outside mm-hmm. of that, we don't know. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm okay saying that. Uh, okay saying that sure. this is kind of an evolving algorithm, you know, from our understanding. So anytime we see something, you know, new come out within this realm, uh, we're, we're, we're excited, uh, but we're confident enough to say that we don't know yet. We don't know uh, outside of this, uh, you know, how to approach the situation. Right. Okay. Well, this was, you know, we're on a quick call here. I, I have to thank Joe a lot because he's like actually in transit right now and took the time I, out I to, to get on this call. So I'm really, really appreciative <laughs> of it. Appreciative of it. So before, yeah, before we, Karen. yeah, oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to say before we end, what do you want the listeners to take away from what your talk is going to be at the San Diego Pain Summit? Sure. So my talk is simply going to be describing some variables that I think are extremely important in any patient interaction, whether it be a physical therapist, a medical doctor, or a massage therapist. So my talk will encompass the medical community as a whole and how do we approach patients who aren't moving, I guess, optimally the way that they would like to move uh, and, and patients that are in pain. So uh, I'm very excited to, to share some things with you guys and, and uh, really hope that you guys do come out to the conference, and if you're unable to attend, uh, we'll partake in the, the virtual uh, um, uh, capabilities of the conference. Yeah, and, and again, so we're, this is the San Diego Pain Summit. You can find out more information at sandiegopainsummit.com. Laura Mosley will be the keynote speaker. Uh, the registration closes on 2-19-2015, so you literally have up until the day before to register. If you can't make it to San Diego, there's going to be a live video access. And along with this live video access, it's also important to know that you can ask questions. So if you have a question, you're listening to Joe's uh, talk, and you have a question for him, you can type it into your computer, and he will be able to hopefully answer that question. So there is a nice interactive quality of it. It's not just like you're an, an inter, interloper. Is that the right word? An interloper on this on the San Diego Pain Summit, you will you do have the chance to contribute as well. So it's really important to note. Um, okay, Joe, thank you so much. Uh, safe travels, um, and thanks hey, so much for coming on. Thanks for having me again. All righty, everybody. Thanks for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.